This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Welcome to the Circuit of Success, and thank you for joining me. You know, it's been said that success comes to those who wait, but I believe the opposite. I believe that it's earned with the right attitude, a great belief system, and action every single day. When you mix that in with faith, courage, discipline, and most importantly, a vision, that's when greatness happens. Now let's dive right in to this week's guest. Welcome to the Circuit of Success. I am your host, Brett Gilliland, and today... We've got a guy, he doesn't know this, but I uh, I read his stuff all the time from Entrepreneur Magazine. Jason Pfeiffer, how you doing? Hey, I appreciate you reading my stuff. I, I wish that I could, I've thought about this. I wish that I could be aware, like I could feel when people are reading my stuff. <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool? But you can't. You, just send, cool. you send it out into the void and then you don't know what happens. And then you just hope to God somebody reads your stuff or listens to your stuff, right? Exactly. It's the best, it's the best you can hope for is, is imagining your own audience. That's right. Well, I appreciate you spending time with us. I know you got a lot going on with your two podcasts, but also, um, you know, you're the the chief uh, editor of uh, Entrepreneur Magazine. So uh, you got a lot of stuff going on there. Love the magazine. You guys do great work. Thank you. Um, but just, you know, if you could tell our listeners that maybe not know who you are, a little bit about Jason Pfeiffer and what's made you the man you are today. Sure. So Jason Pfeiffer does not talk about himself in the third person. So that'll be the end of that. That's good. Uh, I... Uh, yeah, so what do I do? I uh, Well, first of all, I'm the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. I host two podcasts called Problem Solvers and Pessimist Archive. I just co-wrote a novel with my wife that'll be out in October called Mr. Nice Guy. Um, uh, you know, I'm a keynote speaker. I develop funny things for the web. I do a lot of stuff. Uh, I, try to, I try to stay busy and interesting. And what has made me the man I am today? I, you know, I mean, I don't know that I have a specific answer to that. I would say that being young and not taken seriously created this kind of underdog sense in me that I think I still carry around today. Um, Whether that was being at a high school that I hated and didn't really connect with anybody there, um, just that sense I had this, I carried around when I was a teenager, this real anger that as a teenager, I wasn't taken seriously that I, you know, like people look at you and you're like, ah, you're just some kid. And, um, I don't know. I just, I feel like I tap into that. This is not something I like talk about. I don't know. This is just, this is, this just popped into my head. It's not like some campaign I have, but I do, I do often think about that. Like I, I definitely think of myself as someone who it's like, you like always have to be proving yourself. I don't walk around the world thinking like, you know, I'm the king and everybody's got to come to me. Like I, I, I walk into a room and I'm like, all right, got to show these people that I'm for real. Right. You know, what um, was it like growing up? Were, you, were your family entrepreneurs? I mean, now I know you work for entrepreneur magazine, but um, I mean, was that something that was prevalent in your life? Yes and no. I mean, my, my dad, I was extremely, you know, I look wonderful like for all that crap about me not not feeling taken seriously that did not apply to my family my family is wonderful and my parents um my dad is a or was he just retired he was a dentist and he had his own practice so he was just, you know a small business person though yep. he wouldn't he wouldn't have used the word entrepreneur at the time um because I, it wasn't like an in vogue word i think he would have just called himself a small business person um a small business owner 
and then my mom of uh, my mom did uh, does a ton of stuff, um, but all all in the kind of volunteer capacity. So she's been just very involved in various charities and uh, guardian ad litem work, and um, just she does she yeah she does a lot of amazing stuff. But also she I don't she wouldn't have called herself an entrepreneur. But both of them, yeah. um, both of them are were absolute self starters who identified passions and went for them, and then gave me the freedom to pursue my passions and interests. And I certainly wouldn't be here, at least in the capacity and competence that I am, I think, if, if they hadn't given me that freedom. Yeah. So let's let's talk about one of the questions uh, I read in your recent um, magazine edition. And it, it's a great question because I ask myself this question a lot. But you, know, you talked about, am I doing something simply because that's the way it always has been done? Yeah. Right. And I think so much of us, right, as leaders, whether you're a business owner, an entrepreneur, whatever you want to call yourself, right? I mean, I think so much of us feel that way, right? We, we have a wealth management firm. That's it's one of the businesses I own and run and uh, with my business partner, Tim Hammett. And, and I think about that a lot, right? Am I doing it just because this is the way the wealth management industry who's been around forever uh, has always done it? So when you ask yourself that question, what do you come to? It's such an important question. And I'm in a funny position where I am telling people to ask that question a lot, you know, like that's infused into the magazine is this sense of always questioning why you're doing something. It's something that comes up a lot in interviews. But as a, someone who tells people to do things, it, you have to like remind yourself to do them yourself. And so the scariest part of that question is that you don't know the, you don't know the answer to it. You could be like, yeah, why am I doing things just because they're the always way it's been done. But it's, it's not like you can scan for it, like you scan for a virus on the computer, like you have to really catch yourself in your day-to-day actions and say, is this, am I doing this because it's always been done? Why am I, like, where did the assumption come from that I'm doing that? And, you know, you start to track it back and you're like, well, I just learned it from this person or this is how the industry works. And I am trying to ask myself that all the time. I went through this thing with the cover redesign, which I can talk about here. I mean, I guess I now I have to because I just brought it up. But <laughs> to make it super quick, I mean, you can read about it in the magazine, um, which is, I'm sure you did. Yep. I was thinking about how I write the cover lines. The cover line, uh, cover line is a term in the magazine industry for the headlines that you see on the cover of a magazine. And the editor in chief writes the cover lines. That's just that's what happens. Every magazine I've worked at, the editor in chief has written the cover lines. But I started thinking, you know. The cover of a magazine is not really a piece of editorial. The cover of a magazine is a piece of marketing. It's selling the magazine. Trying to get guys like me to buy your magazine. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's an advertisement for the product. Uh, And so if that's the case, that it's marketing and not editorial, then why, in fact, is the guy from editorial, which is me, writing what is functionally marketing copy? Cover lines aren't editorial. They're marketing copy. So I thought, well, what would happen if I – hired a marketing company to do this or asked a marketing company to do this. And I, I approached an enormous one uh, called Huge, whose work I really like. And and they liked the idea as an experiment. And they said, actually, why don't we do one better? And why don't we rethink a cover entirely? At which point I, I had to say like, yeah, like, you know, because frankly, why is the cover the way it is? I and mean, it's, it's the way it is because that's the way the Covers are made. That's the way that our industry designs covers. That's how I've been designing covers. So can we think about that differently? We went through this crazy process. They did, they researched our reader. They produced a bazillion really fascinating 
unbelievably creative cover designs. And we we went with a version of one of them. And we redesigned the cover in March. And I love it. It's just It just jumps yeah. off the newsstand. It feels totally different and fresh. And it was amazing what happens when you start asking this question of yourself, because it just starts leading you down different paths that you didn't know were even available to you. You know, it's like, the, the the bushes part and there's a there's a windy road and you go down it um, and you start making terrible visual metaphors and uh, I just uh, I, I'm so glad that I did that and it it makes me ask that of myself all the time am I running my team the way that that it should is am I am I assigning stories the way that we should be am I writing stories in the way that I've always been doing them. Like I actually, I toy around with that. Sometimes people can see that in my writing, if they, I don't know, really, really pay attention um, where I'm starting to almost philosophize in like my reporting writing. Um, like I, I, the current issue has a uh, Sarah Michelle Geller is on the cover and I wrote that story. And you'll see there, there are places where I just start kind of hypothesizing, especially at the very end. And that's not something I would have done a while ago because I've been like, I'm a journalist and I just report what I see. But you know, but now I'm like, you know what? But I also have a perspective and and I think that I'm at once a kind of reporting on this company, but also sharing a perspective. So why don't I just try that? We'll see what happens. And if people like it, I'll do it more. Um, and actually people do. Like people I've seen I've seen a number of people on social media quote that part in the story where I kind of philosophize. And uh that's very cool. Like that's really satisfying. It tells me that I, I ran a little experiment and um, and it worked, and I should do more. Of it. it worked, but I think too a big point there is is I think what maybe part of the story you're not telling is is the fact that you had just kind of redone the cover right with your team, yeah, and now yeah. you got to go back to your team right and say, hey, oh by the way, we're going to blow this all up and do it over again. Yeah, that's right. right. So you got to be you got to be open to change. Uh huh. Right? You do. You have to be open to change and you set the tone. So if I'm open to change, my team is open to change. I took over this magazine in September of 2016. And one of the first items of business was changing the cover because the the magazine for a long time hadn't had a consistent cover aesthetic. So how do I change that? And we brought on a cover designer, this guy that I knew uh, from Men's Health, and he came up with this cover aesthetic that we, you know, it was great. It was great cover aesthetic. I mean, and we were really happy with it. He was operating under what we asked him to do, which was, which was like, hey, you know, like our magazine covers don't look like everyone else's covers. They look subpar. Let's catch up and let's like find our place. And so he, he created a really good version of a, of like a standard magazine cover. And that I thought was as much as you can do. I thought that was the pinnacle, right? Like you catch up to everyone else and you like do the thing that everyone's doing and great. Okay. Now we're there. We're like with the pack. And it wasn't until I was in this job long enough kind of absorbing the lessons of the entrepreneurs that I talk to every day that led me down a path where I thought, Oh, wait a second, catching up to everybody else is not the game. Surpassing them and thinking about stuff they haven't even thought of. That's the game. Like the game is to be different, not to catch up and be the same. That's why I was really excited about this. The experience made me think, oh my God, there are so many versions of this around me. Like I could probably run this kind of thing where I go down some windy path and come out completely different on basically everything that I do all day, which is at once exciting and terrifying. It's exciting because it's an endless world of possibilities. And it's terrifying because it means that every day that I'm not doing that is a day that I'm just letting some unfulfilled opportunity sit unfulfilled. And that's, that's like maddening, but that's entrepreneurship. uh, I suppose entrepreneurship is knowing that there are opportunities all around you and not being able to take advantage of them all because we are only 
one person. So it's so yeah. yeah. So what do we, I mean, you're, you're diving into some of the best entrepreneurs in the world. I mean, every day, it's what you guys do, right? So what are you finding? Um, what, what are your takeaways that you could share with our listeners that the best of the best are doing? I mean, what, what are the two, three, four things they're focusing on every single day to be great in life? Well, number one is that they're immensely flexible. They do not consider themselves or their companies or anything that they do to be finished products. They are constantly reinventing. They're living in what Reed Hoffman calls permanent beta, which is like my favorite phrase. And I see that all the time. They're willing to change on a dime. They're willing to say that they, though they've been doing X or Y thing for so long, actually don't know the best way to do it. And they're going to have to reinvent and experiment. So they're doing that. Two, they're making long-term decisions that hurt in the short term. I just, I see that over and over again. The most impressive stories I hear from entrepreneurs are those in which somebody saw something coming in the distant future that was going to be lethal. And so they made they made a change that hurt in the short term that maybe many of their partners or even customers didn't understand and might have even resented, but that in the end made for a healthier long-term outlook. Uh, I'll give I'll give you an, just a quick example um, that I love is I wrote about this a long time ago. Uh, so Sam Calgione, I think is how you pronounce his last name. He's the founder of Dogfish Head Brewery, and Dogfish when it created. It's beer, 60-minute IPA. 60-minute IPA just blew up. It was an immensely successful beer. And it started to surpass not just all other styles of their beer, but it also started to just absorb the majority of all sales of, of dogfish. So that if Sam just let it roll and it was just fulfilling demand, he would have ended up with like 75% of all of his sales would have been this one beer, the 60-minute IPA. And that scared him because the way he thought of his company was that they are an innovator and they're constantly trying new things. And he wants to be known for that because that means that he has long-term, he has a long-term future with dogfish in which it can be, it can be evolving. It can be the producer of the beer of the moment, but also the beer of tomorrow. And um, people can keep coming to it for fresh ideas. But if you have one beer, one style of beer, and everybody just knows you as that one style of beer producer, if everyone just knows you as the guy who makes the IPA, and then people lose interest in IPA, well, then what do you got? You got nothing. So he capped sales, a 60 minute IPA at 50% of all sales of dogfish, which meant that, and it's right. So like I so basically it's like turning down 25% of all of his sales. And that meant that retailers were upset, bars were upset, customers were upset. And he would try to use it as an education opportunity. People would call him up, they'd be upset. He'd say, well, listen, we have all these other styles of beers. Why don't you try them? And um, it was a short term, difficult decision. It resulted in a lot of uh, angry fans, but the long-term success of that decision meant that he is he is thought of the way that he wants to be thought of. Dogfish is not thought of as the IPA company. It's thought of as the innovative beer company. And people travel from around the country. I've seen it because I've been there. They travel from around the country to tour his facility. And like they treat him like he's a celebrity. And, uh, and he is in the beer world because he's constantly experimenting. And he's put forth this very specific vision of him uh, that he is able to control. And he didn't give it up just for the short-term benefit of sales. And some version of that has played out in basically every successful entrepreneur I've met. Huh. 
That's great. I love that feedback. And two, I think being flexible, like you said, I think that's huge. And in the, uh, I wrote down long-term decisions that hurt in the short term. Yeah. I mean, those are so true, right? Because we make these decisions. It's the roller coaster ride I talked to on here about with all the entrepreneurs of by morning, you think you're going to, you know, go out of business by afternoon, you're taking over the world, right? Yeah, that's and it's those, short, those short-term decisions. So, so I appreciate you sharing that. Um, what about for you? I'm, I'm using air quotes here that the take care of Jason routine. I mean, what is it? Cause obviously we all as entrepreneurs, business owners, just, you know, successful people listen to this. We can work all day long, but we have families, right? We have, we have kids or not. I know you have a spouse. You said you know, all the stuff. I think you do have a job. Yeah. And so how do we turn it off? What, but how do you take care of Jason? So when you're out of work, I'm not a like self care guy, uh, like it, which I evoke that term in the, like there's a community of self care, I guess that I, which I don't yeah. feel any connection to the way that I have cared for myself is that I have, put my energy into building and evolving a career that doesn't feel like work. Uh, so that that's a big deal right there. It is. It is. I mean, people ask me like, you know, people ask me like, what are my hobbies? I mean, honestly, my hobbies are all the things that I consider work. I mean, like I rattled off all those other things that I, that I, uh, that I do at the beginning of the show. I mean, I guess my podcasts are my hobbies, but they're also work, I guess. I wrote a novel with my wife. That was a hobby, but it it made us money. And so was that work? I don't know. I guess maybe. I love love traveling around and and speaking at events. Is that that work or is that a hobby? I don't know. I guess they're both. The way that I do all those things is that I'm constantly mindful of the skills that I need to develop in order to open up new opportunities for myself. So whenever I'm in a role. This is, you know, like right now I'm in a, an amazing role uh, as editor in chief of the magazine, but it, you know, I've been, I've been kind of low level editor, uh, mid-level editor at other magazines. I was always looking around and thinking, what, what don't I know how to do that I should know how to do? And, and am I in a place right now that could teach me that? And if not, where else can I go that, that I would learn that? And I, I focused on skill sets and, and I focused on learning and I, and I, you know, like I didn't know how to make a podcast. So I made a podcast and now I know how to make a podcast and I can make more podcasts. Like that's just sort of the cycle. And in doing so, I've created an environment for myself in which sometimes I have to go home and help put the kid to bed and then have a quick dinner with my wife and then get back to work. And I'm working from eight to 11, but it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't. I mean, it just feels like, it feels like fulfilling the thing that I'm excited about. And I'd rather do that than like sit on the couch and watch TV. So I feel like I'm taking care of myself and maybe that'll change. You designed your life. Yeah. Designed Designed your life to do the things you want to do. Yeah, that's right. And, and maybe that'll change and that's fine. And there, there could come a point where I will want to do other things or, or, or dial it back as my kid gets older, maybe. And I have other, then I want to, I don't know, take him out for things instead of, he's like, he's like almost three now. So like, he's just kind of runs around in his yeah. underwear, right? It's pretty easy. Right. Um, but, uh, but it works for me right now. I like it. Well, I think this, I mean, it's absolutely true what you're saying is I feel the same way. I, you know, I don't have a, I got four kids and, and a wife oh, and, and so I, don't, I don't have what I would call a ton of hobbies. Right. I mean, I do golf and all those things, but I, I'm the same way. I have, I've created my environment to do the things I love to do every day and it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm exactly on with you. And I think you, know, you see people that are sick all the time, right? I, I'm not a doctor, so I'm just, this is my personal opinion, but I think those people are not living up to their potential. Um, because they've not designed their life to put the things that they want to be doing every day in there. And that's what leads to being sick and just not wanting to go do things. 
Yeah. Right? When's the last when's the last time you took a sick day? Uh, well, I caught, I caught the, I caught the flu, uh, this flu. Well, that's a bad one. So yeah. But but you get my point though, right? You don't miss that much work because you love what you do. No, that's true. That's true. And, and in fact, you know, sometimes, uh, on a, on a nice spring day or, or a holiday weekend or something like the president of the entrepreneur media will walk around and send everyone home early on Friday. (laughs) I don't leave. I'm still here because I, like I have other things to do. I kind of budgeted my day out and, um, what the hell am I going to do if I leave? Like go home and probably just fire up the computer. So I, I might as well just kind of stay here and keep going. And I, and I like it. But you know, but it is important. I guess I should add to this though that I do make I do make a concerted effort to get together with friends, to go out with my wife, to hire a lot of babysitters. Like I see time in terms of value, but value isn't always work product. So sometimes value is strengthening relationships. And yep. we host a lot at home. Uh, it's, it's harder to go out now that, you know, I got a, I got a three-year-old, but yep. I, Friday, or, you know, we're, we're, we're talking on a Monday, Saturday night, Sunday night, and tonight, we, we have friends who, who came over and we made them dinner or at least bought takeout. And then it's, you know, it's, it's wonderful. It, it like, it like fits into my schedule, you know, cause like I can yep. come home and then 20 minutes later, our friends are coming over and uh, <laughs> exactly. just like really, not much downtime, no, which is, but that's great. I, that's great. And, um, and I find that's, that stuff is, is important. I don't have time anymore for like the boozy brunches that I did when I was in my twenties or whatever, where we like, go out and get, yeah. get like, tanked and there goes all of Sunday. <laughs> but, right. um, but you know, if I can, if I can meet friends for an hour for brunch, like that's, that's important. We should be doing that stuff. And I'm really, I'm conscious of that. And I'm really, really proactive about reaching out to friends and, and seeing them. I love it. How much did fear drive your career? That's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that. I never thought about it in terms of fear. I, I mean, well, I guess. Would you, I, agree, would you agree with me that you've probably put fears in your mind though, like throughout your career, like, oh, I'll never be this person, or I'll, I'll never run a major magazine like you're doing now, right? I mean, there's those things. I think we say them doesn't mean we necessarily believe them, but I think sometimes we put it in our mind. And, and my point to that question is, how many of the fears you put in your mind actually blew up to the magnitude you put them in your mind to be? I guess I'm, I'm wired a little differently. I, I mean, I, all the things I could reframe everything that motivated me in terms of, in terms of fear, but I, I thought about it a little differently. I, I you know, I'll tell you, I started telling myself this thing, which was, which was, I'm not around. Like that was, a, it was like a daily mantra that I would tell myself. I'm not around. And I don't know exactly when I started doing that, but it was a very long time ago. And, and I think that the thing that that comes out of is it's not, it's not fear so much as it is awareness of the steep incline ahead of me. It's not that fear drove me so much as um, so much as the the overwhelming challenge ahead of me that I knew if I did not just put my head down and say to myself, "I'm not around," over and over and over again as I kind of moved forward, that I wasn't going to go forward and. Um, and, and I really did not want to stand still. I had an opportunity. That opportunity was that I think I'm smart and that I can figure things out and that I had a passion for various things. And like those things change, but like, you know, whatever you chase your passion at the time. And, um, and if I didn't put my head down and like bulldoze through the wall, then I was going to stay in the same place. And I was, and I could look around at every job and I'd be like, those are the people who didn't do the thing that I'm telling myself I'm going to do. I do not want to be like them. 
which is not to say that their choices were bad, right? Their choices could be perfectly fine for them. Like, uh, you know, there were there were people who worked at these smaller newspapers who who spent decades doing that. And if they are happy doing that, then God bless. Like, that's great. It just wasn't for me. Like, I, I wanted to do other things. And so... Uh, do you remember that defining moment? Like, do you remember like almost like the light switch flip into that? Like, I'm not messing around. I quit two jobs very early on. Um, I quit my, I, I worked in two newspapers and I quit both of them. And both times I quit to freelance um, because I had come to the conclusion correctly, I think, that the people who I wanted to work with, like at national publications, were not reading the stuff that I was writing at these small little newspapers. So I needed to go to those people instead of waiting for them to come to me because they were literally never going to come to me. And in one case, the fir- very first job uh, that I ever had was this tiny little newspaper. I quit it after a year and I sat in my bedroom for nine months and, and just a like, cold pitch, the Washington Post and Boston Globe and whatever. And I got some hits. And then, uh, and then I took a, another small newspaper job because I, I needed the money. And, um, but I kept freelancing. And then I saw this. Uh, I was freelancing a lot for Boston Magazine. And I saw some movement after like a year in which a senior editor had left and a junior editor was going to move up to that senior editor position, which would open up a junior editor position. And I was like, that's mine. Like I, that is my job. I'm going to take that job. And that's going to be my springboard to all these other things that I want to do. So I quit the newspaper, the second newspaper in central Massachusetts. I got uh, an apartment in Boston at a very high cost of of, uh, living. And I told the editor in chief of Boston magazine that I was ready to be hired. And you know, that's scary. And I put, that was a, that was like a major financial risk that I took. And all also just a career risk. Like what would have happened if he said no? Um, but instead what he did was he, he gave me a few more freelance assignments doing things that I, he hadn't seen me do yet. And then he hired me. Um, and so it was, it must've been during one of those two things where I basically kind of, I jumped off the ledge and I was like, let's see, let's see what I land on here. And, uh, that I started needing something to tell myself that like this all made sense. So there was a, there was a, this wasn't an insane idea. And, uh, the, you know, and, and I'm not around is a pretty good one. Like, basically, right, right. like you know, like if, if, if it didn't work out, I would have found something else. Like, I would have just kept going because I'm not around. Like the point of this is to spot the goal and then like go charging after it and tackle it to the ground. And then once I got to Boston magazine, then it was, you know, you like, you get to one place and it's not the end. It's just another beginning. So I'd get to one job and then, you know, and then like, what's the next goal? Okay. The next goal is to get to a, a newspaper or I mean like a mag, like a national magazine in New York. And then I pulled that off. I went to men's health and you get there and it's like, all right, well, what's the next goal? Well, the next goal is to not be like the bottom rung guy on a national magazine in New York. So like, move up. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, like nothing ever felt like a celebration to me. Nothing ever felt like I accomplished anything. It was just like, you just climb up to the next step and then you just crane your neck up and you see where the other thing is and you just keep on climbing. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, that's the circuit of success, right? That I talk about. And so attitude, right? You had a good attitude. You're, you're not messing around. You're going to go make things happen. You had certain beliefs, belief in yourself, belief in what you're writing. You know, I'm talking about this stuff for you for timing, but, and, and then ultimately it gets you the action, right? You got to do the action. You had to show up every day. You had to write even when nobody was reading and even when nobody was buying your stuff, right? Or paying you to do anything. You still got to go out and write. That's your taking action every day. And then it ultimately got you results. And I think what I always say is once you get those results, it creates a whole new vision, right? So you got the men's health, then you want to run something, right? And that was that new vision. And and where you're at now, there's going to constantly be a new vision. It's it's never it never stops. Yes, uh, I think so. Um, what what would you define if somebody said to you, and I'm sure you may get asked this considering you run a magazine called Entrepreneur, what is an entrepreneur? 
Yeah, uh, I think it's changed significantly. So, an entrepreneur used to be a small business person. Like it was just, it was not a term that was used very widely. And I think it was uh, for the majority of the forty years that this brand has been around, uh, entrepreneur just equaled small business person. That's not true anymore. I think of an entrepreneur as someone who makes things happen for themselves. That is like full stop. That's what it is, um, and that means that an entrepreneur. Like to be an entrepreneur is to have a particular mindset. You can you can be entrepreneurial in any situation. You can it doesn't you don't have to own a business. You don't have to have to have started a business. You could work for someone else, but you're thinking entrepreneurially. You could have some side hustle, and that's where your entrepreneurial passion is. Um, I think you know you, there's just there's so many ways to go out into the world and say, nobody is going to bring me the opportunity. I have to go create the opportunity for myself. And that to me is an entrepreneur. Yep. Love it. I love it. Where can our uh, listeners find more Jason Pfeiffer? You can find me all sorts of places. I am, uh, let's see, uh, on Instagram and Twitter, Hey Pfeiffer at H-E-Y-F-E-I-F-E-R, uh, Problem Solvers and Pessimist Archive are the two podcasts. So um, check those out. My website is jasonpfeiffer.com. If you go there, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called the Pfeiffer Five, Five Entrepreneurial Insights that I found particularly compelling that month. And, um, and, uh, you know, reach out, get in touch. Oh, if you, if you, and, and, uh, you know, I had mentioned that novel, Mr. Nice Guy. Um, I am, uh, I'm trying to figure out like what kind of incentive I can give to people, you know, who are going to like pre-order, like pre-order the book. Right. And, um, so right. But I haven't figured it out yet. Uh, but I really love, I love making my process, uh, very public, you know, the column that I write in that magazine is very much about my process. So, um, so I'll, so I'll tell your listeners right now, I, I haven't figured it out, but if you have an idea, uh, let me know and pre-order, pre-order the book and tell me what you want me to do for you. And I'll, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that'll be the direction. I like it. Well, we'll certainly be sharing that stuff when uh, when those details come out on social media for you. And uh, man, I appreciate your time, Jason. It's been awesome having you. Best of luck in your career and look forward to chatting again. Hey, thanks. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on. Tune in next week for another episode of The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.